You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation Podcast, episode 145. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation Podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. Greg Luther is an avid hunter living in Montana. As a sportsman and a gun owner, he supports stricter gun control. In a recent op-ed piece published in High Country News, Luther stated, We hunters pride ourselves on self-sufficiency, so let's work from the ground up. That means looking at the facts, talking about it around the campfire, voting for candidates that aren't in the NRA's pocket, and donating dollars to organizations that help protect the things that actually are under threat, like our public lands. Matt Podolsky caught up with Greg Luther to discuss the inspiration behind this powerful piece. My name is Greg Luther, and I suppose for the context of this, I'm a hunter. I'm a hunter and I'm a Westerner. I grew up in, in Wyoming and New Mexico, and, and I'm a writer, probably first and foremost. Um, and uh, I also work in sort of related conservation fields and conservation education. So all of these things kind of uh, dovetail for me into my interests, yeah, hunting, writing, uh, Western history, and um, conservation all, all, all kind of come together for me. Very cool. Very cool. Tell, tell me a little bit more about, you know, your writing and like, you know, what, what kind of stuff, I mean, are you, um, do you, uh, like journalistic writing or is it, I mean, are, are you, you know, have you published books? I mean, give me a little bit more detail there. Yeah. Yeah. I've sort of recently gotten into, um, doing more journalistic writing, writing about, conservation and and also western issues uh western history to a degree uh different essays on those topics you know originally and and primarily i still like think of myself as being a fiction writer but this has been like a new and but i haven't had much luck doing that <laughs> and so, to be honest and so this has been like a that's something that i've i i've gotten interested in in the last I would say maybe maybe six months, something like that, at writing nonfiction about particular issues that are of interest to me. Gotcha. Very cool. And obviously, as you mentioned, one of those interests is hunting. Um, did you grow up, uh, you know, learning how to hunt? No, funnily enough, my dad, my dad, I grew up in Wyoming. I grew up in, um, I grew up in Laramie and Cheyenne and in southeastern Wyoming and lived for a long time in New Mexico. And my, my father was a hunter. He kind of lost interest in it. I think he liked harvesting meat and he liked having that, but he didn't particularly like the act of of killing these animals. And so he kind of lost interest, I think, in the end. And so by the time I came around, he was no longer really hunting and we didn't hunt together. So that's something that's developed in like the last um, five or six years of my life, probably. Gotcha. Yeah, that's um, my uh, interest in hunting is, is is similar, right? I mean, I've sort of just, you know, become interested in hunting in the last five or six years. Um, didn't grow up um, I mean, I grew up around guns, but um, I wasn't exposed to hunting at, at all. And and I don't know, it's, it's interesting. You know, I've been talking with a lot of young people um, that have gotten into hunting. And I, there's like a common theme there, you know. I mean, I think uh, as far as folks like you and I who, um, you know, are, are younger, like maybe more progressive politically than like what you would sort of uh, expect from somebody that that um, is interested in hunting. Um, seems like often, you know, they're folks that sort of came to it through their own process, right, rather than like growing up with it, which is sort of like the typical thing you hear from. Uh, I don't know, that's that's sort of what you assume based on the stereotype, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's so interesting that like it's also has such a long history of hunting and conservation and sort of the progressive ideals at, at the turn of the century. That has such a long there is a long history of that. Mm -hmm. It's not like in some sense, I agree with you, like that it feels like the the stereotypical hunter is not um, someone of of progressive conservation values, but 
and and that's my sense of it when I was growing up. But I think like looking more at the past, you can see how that has its has its own sort of has its own history as well. You're right. There's definitely an interesting historical context to it, right? Because I mean, you know, when you think about hunting and the history of hunting, I mean, you think about Teddy Roosevelt, um, right. Right. and uh, you know he was a prolific hunter, you know, and, and he practiced, you know, uh, I mean, he went on hunts that probably you and I would view as maybe even unethical, right? I mean, right. You know, lots of predator hunts and stuff. I mean, that was the kind of stuff he was into. Um, but at the same time, he was one of the, mo- at that time, he was seen as an incredibly progressive politician, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah. So it's so definitely, the history of it is, is definitely very interesting, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, like, how, how did you become interested in hunting? I mean, what inspired you to, to take it up? Gosh, you know, that's a good question. And I, um, I think it's partly living in, I live in Montana now. I've lived here for 10 years, partly living here. There's a culture of it. You see, you see other like-minded people that are doing it that, um, perhaps don't fit that stereotypical mold that we were talking about. Uh, so there's that aspect. There's also like Missoula. Montana is a pretty gray and dreary place in the fall and uh, and the summer kind of comes to a close and if you like spending time outdoors and you'd like going out on an adventure it seems like the natural progression to sort of get interested in that sort of thing it keeps me outdoors during that particular season and I think that that at least was the initial impetus to get me interested in the sport. It was like, oh, how do I get out when it's rainy and nasty outside and make this something that I can enjoy? Right, right. It's not ski season. It's not a good time to be out mountain biking. So yeah, yeah. What are you gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> so I went. I went. Maybe the first hunt that I ever went on was a bird hunt. And then later I got more into big game hunting, but we, I went with my brother-in-law and, and my sister and we took a raft and floated down the Missouri river, uh, sort of North of great falls. And there are a bunch of islands in the river that are public land. Um, and so we would sort of Island hop from, from, yeah, we'd go from Island to Island, uh, hunting pheasant and we didn't do very well, but, uh, you know, we got, we got some ducks and, uh, we had a pretty, pretty great day. And, uh, I think I was hooked from there on out. <laughs> nice. Nice. Good deal. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I kind of want to, you know, talk about this, this article you wrote. Yeah. So the, the article was an op-ed that I wrote about, um, gun ownership and gun use and hunting and the, it was during hunting season that there was a, a mass shooting. There had been several of them. There always are. There's always one after the last one. I've been thinking about it for a long time. Sometimes it. I remember after the Las Vegas shooting, like I was going to go to the range and practice and just like get some shots in. And I felt, I, I don't know, I felt like some confliction. Not, not confliction about owning or using a gun, I guess, but just there are like really powerful and can be frightening even when used when used properly and well and and I felt a little odd about it and then there was this mass shooting in Texas uh the church there and I and I wanted to and I think I've long wanted to say something about it about um about this issue and I don't I don't know it's like it's hard to it's hard to get at, I guess. I think like we often feel so impotent in the face of large scale problems like this, right? Like personally, we have very little ability to affect um, this, but to affect mass shootings, to affect to 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 affect some change. And so, uh, I think it was feeling fed up with that feeling and wanting to express it, you know. A, a more complicated viewpoint about gun ownership that one could that one could be really for moderate forms of gun ownership and also be very strongly against the NRA be strong feel strongly that there's need for further regulation and still recognize a kind of 
longstanding heritage of, of gun ownership and particularly hunting in, in the U.S. And so it was, it was in response to those things that I wrote the article. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, I, it's, um, it's interesting, you know, I, 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 I think I reached a similar point, you know, but not at the same moment. I mean, I, I think I reached it, you know, more recently in response to, um, the Parkland shooting and, and just this like mass, like uprising. And, and it, you know, it really feels like we're in this, um, this moment where something might change. Right. Um, and, you know, I, 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 it's, it's like, I, I, I'm conflicted, right? Because, you know, I, I am a gun owner and like, I'm going to be honest, like, like a part of me is happy that I live in, in a state in here in Idaho, um, where I'm not required to go out and go through a process to get a license to carry a gun. And I don't have to register those guns. The government does not know that I own those guns. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, same, and I mean, same. I see myself as a very responsible gun owner. Like I keep them locked. Um, and you know, I, I, I only use them for hunting. I mean, so I don't feel like I'm posing any sort of threat to society by, by owning those guns and, and, and using them to, to hunt. But you know, I, I think, I mean, I, I think I reached, you know, like maybe a, a, a similar point to what you're talking about where I was like, you know, okay, well, at some point you have to recognize that, like, you have to accept that, you know, you're willing to, uh, give up some of, you know, like how comfortable you are in that situation for, the greater good, right. For the benefit of, of this society that we live in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we do it all the time. We do, we do, we make those kinds of concessions uh, all the time. And it, it, and it's like, it's kind of unclear. I think data wise, it's unclear how much gun control is. It's clear that some things will have an effect. It's unclear that other things will in part because a lot of the science has been blocked by legislators who, you know, are in, in the pocket of certain organizations. But um, yeah, I think like there has to be a willingness to recognize that our own, our own benefit, notwithstanding, there, there might be a reason to accept some of these, these things that might seem like inconveniences. Like if it's an inconvenience, imagine that if you can't, you have to register your your rifle and you have to go through a couple of training courses in order to have it and you have to get a yearly you have to do a yearly recertification those things seem like a real pain to me mm -hmm. but if it were to have an effect if it were to have a, a a meaningful effect on gun deaths like is that not a sacrifice that we're willing to make that seems to me pretty clear morally where where one would, where one, in my opinion, should stand on that issue. Yeah, totally. And I mean, you're right. You start getting into the specifics of like, we're willing to, you know, um, uh, accept this inconvenience um, if it's going to benefit society as a whole and prevent these horrific events from, from happening as frequently as they are. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's really hard to, to know. I mean, there's like, a thousand ideas that everybody has out there about like, oh, we need to do this thing. We need to ban assault rifles. We need to, you know, have better background checks. Um, I mean, you know, raise the, the, the age, the, the minimum age for purchasing guns. I mean, all these ideas that are out there floating around right now. And it's like, well, I don't know. What do you do? Do you do all of them? You, right, you, yeah. you like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to come out in support of like one specific idea of like, oh, we should ban assault rifles. Right. And then all these people come out like, oh, well, like what's the, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I watched this video that actually like, I'm like, oh shit, they made a really good point. Right. There's this, this, you know, just short little web video. And, and they were talking about, you know, sort of the, the, um, you know, the question they pose is like, what's the benefit of an assault rifle ban? And they have these videos showing people using, you know, like how quickly demonstrating how rapidly people can fire, say a revolver or a, right. a whole, a whole bunch of different types of guns that are not classified as semi-automatic right. and you know essentially showing like how rapidly you know you can get those shots off just as quickly even if the gun isn't categorized as 
you know, uh, semi-automatic and certainly not, you know, an assault rifle. So it's like, I don't, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so tricky, right? But at the same time, right? I mean, I think there is something to the idea of just being willing to accept whatever works, you know, like I'm willing to accept whatever inconvenience, whatever it means, like if there is proven science to show that it's effective, right? Yeah. And that's the, that's the, that's the travesty here though, right? Is that uh, efforts to study the effects of gun control have been so suppressed by the industry. Well, they banned the CDC from studying it. They banned the CDC from studying it. I read somewhere there was like, of all the other leading causes of death, you know, gun, <laughs> death by guns is so understudied. It's so underfunded. It, it's against the law to study it. You know, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that we, part of the reason we can't get answers or that we don't know, maybe an assault rifle ban doesn't do anything. Like we don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But unless we unless we're willing to ask hard questions about it and put money behind it and dedicate federal funds to solving the problem, then then, you know, uh, it's it's we're not going to have that clarity of answer. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's a step. You yeah. know, that's yeah. a clear step that needs to happen. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And and, you know, I, I think sort of like the big picture message of, of your article was like, hey, hunters, like, take the very, very simple step of like, standing up and saying, I'm willing to make a compromise, right? Um, right. Just on the most basic level, you know, and um, yeah, it's, you know, I, I, I was telling you about how, you know, I sort of reached this, this similar point to you where I was like, I feel like I need to express, you know, what I'm feeling about this issue and, and, and in response to everything that, that is going on. And, and, uh, there was, there was a specific moment, right? I mean, I was like scrolling through my Facebook feed, you know, the week after the, the shooting in Parkland. And, and I, I noticed that I had quite a few friends on Facebook who were, um, calling out gun owners and saying, right. you know, hey, you people who own guns, like, make a statement by giving up your guns. Right. You know, um, and so and, and like, I, I get that. Right. You know, like that's a that would be a really powerful statement if you have a whole group of people who are gun owners who say, I am willing to relinquish this um, for the benefit of society, just as we were talking. Right. But I'm like, well, I use that gun like this is not just this isn't like a hobby. For me, like, I don't think of hunting as a hobby. I think of it as a way to put food sure. on my table. Sure. You know? Sure. And and I think there's yeah. something different about that. And it's like the utility of this this tool, you know, right. that like okay. you and I use to harvest animals and that meat then feeds my family, you know? And like, I, I, I do think that's, and I'm, that's not why everybody hunts, but that's why I hunt, you know, the, probably the number one reason, you know? you know, it, it just, it, it got me thinking. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, if that's not, if that's not the right message, like if I don't feel comfortable with that, right, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to give my guns up. Right. Um, like what would that thing be? Like what, what to tell people to do instead. Right. And what I, the, 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 what I landed on was an, an anti NRA message. Yeah. Here's something you can do. Like, do you know any family members that are NRA members? Like, start a dialogue about why they support the NRA. Right. You know, um, because how powerful would it be if you just have, you know, gun owners and mass like walking away from that organization? That is like so like, I mean, they just the NRA is just feels like the heart of this problem, you know, Um so I don't know. And I mean, you, you, you know, you, you talk about the NRA and like their influence in your article as well. So, I mean, I, I wonder just like, you know, what your thoughts are on that. And like, I mean, maybe you can just explain to like our listeners sort of what, what that message was and, 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 and how you connected the NRA to that. Yeah. So my, my take in general is that the NRA wants to um, paint all gun owners with the same stroke. They want to say that that 
and consolidate um, consolidate that voting block and that power behind a, a kind of single message. And they do that primarily through fear. They say, your guns are going to be taken away. You need to worry about uh, they're going to be they're going to be stolen from you. Blah blah. blah. We you know we all we all have heard Wayne Lapierre talk a little bit. Um, it, it, and so anyway, he it, that seems to be the the sort of methodology that they use. And then, but and my thought is purely that that there are different gradations of gun owners. There are people who feel very differently about it, and unless. Unless we can articulate a vision and articulate an idea that differentiates ourselves from the NRA, then we're sort of tacitly allowing uh, ourselves to be affiliated with them. But I, I like I, I enjoy shooting. I enjoy hunting. Uh, but I have almost nothing in common with the NRA and I refuse to be affiliated with them, you know. And that's easier said than done from a from a like consumer point of view, from a from a political point of view. But at least in our voice, we can start to drive a little bit of a wedge and say, look, some of these things like lobbying to not allow scientific study of what causes gun deaths is not something that I want to stand behind as a gun owner and a hunter. It's not at all what I want to stand behind. And I don't want to be driven by fear in my decision-making. And, and so I, I, the idea was really to try to, to try to separate the groups a little bit. The NRA in the last, I, I don't know how long it's been exactly, but they've really made an effort to they have a new sort of channel and new marketing that really, uh, is intended for the primary market for it is hunters uh, and fear of um, hunting and guns being taken away as they try to consolidate that, that that block and that power. And I think it's really essential that a different vision of what it means to be a hunter gets articulated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it doesn't happen very often. And, and it seems like, you know, I, I have to believe there are a lot of hunters that are on both sides of the aisle. And there are a lot of hunters who don't, who, who wouldn't stand for, you know, this suppression of um, scientific study on gun deaths. And, and the, and the thing that we need to figure out is like, what, what is a movement that can oppose that kind of radicalism? And uh, that's the idea. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm totally on board with it. You know, um, I will join that movement with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> and I mean, I, I like I, I do think it's happening. I do honestly think that that the seeds of that movement are here. And, um, you know, I think there is some evidence for that. I mean, I think we're seeing, you know, uh, a, a new breed of, of, of hunters, you know, um, in our generation, that have a very different, you know, um, mindset. Um, and I mean, that's obviously hundred percent anecdotal. Um, however, I mean, I did, so I, I reached out to the, um, the Rocky mountain elk foundation, um, which is, that's based up in Missoula, right? Where you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, the Rocky mountain elk foundation is, is, is one of the largest groups that like, you know, represent hunters, right? Not, right. they don't represent gun owners. They represent hunters. And obviously they're, you know, it's it, elk is in the name, but, um, they have a, a very substantial membership, um, national organization. Um, and they're doing a lot of good conservation work. Right. Um, however, you know, I, I interviewed their, um, their chief conservation officer. And I mean, a couple of things struck me in that interview. I mean, one is he, he, he talked openly about the diverse array of perspectives that their membership has on right. the gun control issue. And he right. told me that they got very strong, very, you know, um, passionate, um, reactions to the Parkland shooting on yeah. both extremes of the spectrum. 
right? right? So, you know, within this, this, this organization that I see is, you know, like, I mean, they're representing hunters specifically, unlike the NRA, um, you know, the perspectives and the reactions to that event are across the board from one extreme of what you would expect from like, you know, your diehard NRA type person, like, um, to exactly what we're talking about, right. Of like, Hey guys, like stand up for something, <laughs> you know, like, um, yeah. at least be willing to, to, to make a compromise and to like work towards a solution to this rather than just, you know, sticking your heads in the sand. Um, so that, that was interesting to me. Right. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's also, I mean, and, and this was not something that he explicitly stated, but I mean, in the way he was responding to my questions, um, it was very clear that like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is not, despite what their membership comes out and says, like, they're not going to like listen to the extreme left perspective of on their mm-hmm. of their membership and they're not going to come out and make any kind of statement they're, they're not going to say anything about gun control at all right and it's because they're afraid of losing the members on the right the ones who are adamant supporters of the nra and like that's the problem i mean that's why and i've i've been asking this question for years right of like why isn't there an organization that like represents this like this new breed of hunters you know what i mean and yeah. and and that really like truly represents um, the connection between hunting and conservation. I mean, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, you know, makes that claim over and over again. Um, but they um, they have difficulty taking strong stances and and on 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 many conservation issues, right? And and certainly on on gun control, right? I mean, that goes without sure. saying. Um, cool. But I mean, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has, has a lot of difficulty in finding a stance to take on uh, wolf reintroduction yeah. issues. Yeah, they, they really struggle. They really they struggle like, with that. And, and they really and I mean, they're struggling a lot right now with the lead ammunition issue. OK, um, yeah. You know, I mean, they're they're unwilling to really say anything at all about um, lead ammunition and, you know, the negative impacts that bullet fragmentation are having on scavenging species and, and, and that whole issue. Um, and, and, and the reason is really obvious is like, they're just, they're afraid of alienating half their membership, you know? Um, and so it's, it's, it's just unfortunate, right? That like the, the groups out there that seem like they have, they hold the best potential to like bring people together and to like depolarize um, are unwilling to do it because, you know, like, <laughs> you know, yes. I mean, they rely on donations from those members, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I wish there could be some kind of consensus. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is broad enough and, like you said, represents a wide enough array of interests that we can't expect them to embrace a, a progressive model or come out with a strong, a strong position. But it seems to me like I wish we could find consensus around the idea of asking questions about it. Mm-hmm. It seems like a fairly I think I think people are afraid what the questions might lead to. Right. <laughs> and but that's like that's that's not quite that's not quite intellectually fair. Like you have to you have to if we can find some some uh consensus around the idea that it's okay to ask pose questions that it's okay to like study if the rocky mountain elk foundation could say we we support looking into this that doesn't seem like a radical position well right but that i mean that that is their position right so like you know i i asked this this guy you know some specific questions about about the lead ammunition issue and i mean that that was his response of oh we support studying it right and i'm like so do you not like, do you not believe the, 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 you know, the published studies that like, do you not think that there is enough proof out there currently to demonstrate that this is a problem for scavenging species, sure. Sure. you know, okay. because there, because there is right. And then there, you know, and I mean, gun control is, is a different type of issue, right? Because like there has been a intentional effort to um, restrict 
um, and prevent that research from being done. Um, yeah. You know? yeah. But then you take a conservation issue like the wolf issue or, you know, yeah. the, the lead ammunition issue. And they're like, and they'll, they'll talk about supporting studies till the cows come home. Right. But they're <laughs> never going to act on those stuff sure. on that research, sure. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think it's, it's the, the, the same problem could happen with, with the gun control issue. Right. I mean, like, um, I don't know. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, it's tough to say, right. Because I mean, a lot of that research has been intentionally, you know, subverted, you know, prevented from ever even happening. Um, so we just have a lot of unanswered questions. Right. But like the, the, the moment that we're in, right. I mean, very few people are talking about, Oh, let's go do research on what really causes these mass shootings. Like no, not very many people are talking about that. Right. It's people on one side saying this is the solution. And then people on the other side saying, no, 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 this is the solution. Right. Um, you know, and I mean, it's not like the, the, the folks on the right, you know, the NRA supporters, I mean, they're still advocating for a quote unquote solution. They just want more guns, (laughs) you know, like, Oh, give teachers guns. And that'll like, just have more, 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 more guns. Right. Um, which to you and I sounds crazy probably sounds crazy to me but um you know it's like there's no evidence on either like so what are you gonna do you know? i know i know well i mean there's anecdotal evidence that sure. like be over the last however however long um that well i mean since what the brady the brady bills expired um uh, you know we've had essentially growth in gun rights over the past 20 years and that's now that's all very anecdotal Mm -hmm. but um something isn't working i think that's apparent to everybody right that's apparent yeah one thing that i think a lot of people are missing in all of this is um the benefit that the nra gets out of this whole system you know Because every time there's a mass shooting, the same thing happens, right? I mean, it's it's playing out a little bit differently this time, which is good. Uh, but like up until this moment, every time there's a mass shooting, the exact same thing happens. And the NRA uses every single one of their moments to reach out to their membership and say, hey, these guys are coming to take your guns away. And right. what do all those people do? They go they buy were- more guns. Yeah. Right. And that's exactly what the NRA wants them to do, because the NRA doesn't represent gun owners. They represent gun manufacturers. Right. Like that's all they care about is selling more guns and making money for their clients. Right. And that's been a change. Right. Like that's I don't know if I covered that in the in the article, really. But for a long time, the NRA was a very different organization. It was a very member based organization that was really about. Uh, marksmanship and gun ranges and um, learning the safety of using guns. It it did all of those things. And for a long time, that's primarily where its funding came from. And that's primarily what it stood for. But there seems to have been, while the funding has drastically shifted, the public perception of it has, at least on the right, has not. And, um, it is no longer really that organization. Um, it, it is an organization in in the pocket of of the gun industry. Yeah, yeah, and you know one of the interesting things I, I I was doing a little bit of research, you know, in preparation for for these interviews I've been doing, um, and there was a, a really interesting series of uh, investigative reports that were done back in 2012, 2013 um, that. Um, looked at um, another very significant funding source for the NRA, which is oil companies. And right. so oil companies have been providing very substantial funding to the NRA for quite a while. Um, and, you know, the, the, the thinking, I mean, which seems like uh, initially I'm like, well, wait, what? Why would the, why would fossil fuel companies be, you know, funding the NRA? Um but the, I mean, what you start thinking about a little bit, I mean, the obvious answer is to make sure that the NRA does not support 
this movement to protect public lands. Yeah. That's, yeah, because they have such because power I mean, that's power. the thing. That's the thing that the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is doing. And every organization out there that truly represents hunters is fighting to protect public lands. And the NRA is silent on that issue. And the reason why is because their funding comes from the fossil fuel industry. Ah, that's a that's a that's a nexus, mm-hmm, right? <laughs> Um, I mean, that and that, like, once I learned that, I'm like, oh my God, it's just like the NRA just got even more evil. I didn't know it was possible, right? <laughs> I learned today, I learned about Vista Outdoor. Do you know about Vista Outdoor? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they are obvious, they're an outdoor organization. They sell like um, bike gyro bike helmets are made by them and owned by them, and a bunch of stuff that's sold at REI. And REI has recently come out and said that they're not going to continue to. To sell their products right. because Vista Outdoor also, I think, owns uh, federal ammunitions right. and Savage Firearms right. and a couple of others. Right. Um, but the interesting thing, and I don't know this to be true. I, 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 I waded into the comments forum on a, the bottom of some article, which is always a mistake. And uh, anyway, this it. Uh, the claim that this person was making, which seemed intelligent, and he didn't seem like totally off his rocker or anything, was that this outdoor contributes a, a very large amount of funding toward conservation, like much more than Patagonia, much more than REI, much more than a lot of these organizations combined. And so here you have this nexus, not of hunting and conservation, but of like arms manufacturer mm-hmm. and conservation and there it gets really muddy uh well, yeah. mm-hmm. absolutely and so i mean this this is something that um i mean this is an argument that 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 um um that a lot of people put forth right and i mean there's there is a legitimate basis behind this so like back in the 30s um you know this goes back you know, to the the early days of like, you know, I mean, not quite all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt, but um, I believe it was the in the 1930s. Um, and it's called the Pittman Robert, the Pittman Robertson Act. And essentially what that bill did was it um, imposed a tax on the sale of all guns and ammunition. OK, and that um the, the the money from that tax goes to um, I believe it goes directly to like state fish and game agencies to fund conservation projects. Mm. Right. And so the idea is that like, you know, you're taking a percentage um, of the money that sportsmen spend on, you know, on guns and ammunition, and you're putting it back into the management of the target species. Right. Right. Into game right. management. Right. Which is conservation. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. And there's actually been, um, so there are, um, there are some, some hunting groups, some, you know, some of the more progressive hunting groups, um, which obviously are way, way smaller than like, you know, the scale of the NRA, but there are groups out there that are currently, um, advocating for a similar type of bill for outdoor recreation equipment generally. And so there is this perspective within the hunting community that like, hey, us as hunters and us as shooters, like we're funding conservation directly every time we make a purchase. Um, And anytime you buy ammunition, that's that's true. You know, a small percentage of the money you're spending goes to game, you know, state fish and game agencies. Um, But if you go buy like, you know, a backpack or like, you know, you know, uh, any kind of like, you know, sort of outdoor recreation gear generally, like that's, that's not the case. Right. And so there is this attitude of like hunters be like, well, like we're paying for this and you're not, you know what I mean? Like our use of the landscape, our use of public lands, like we're putting money back into it. And you guys are going out like mountain biking, backpacking, like all that stuff. Like you're not, you know? Um, And I think it's a legitimate argument. I mean, I think there should be a, a, a sort of a, a, Pittman Robertson for, you know, outdoor recreation, uh, gear generally. 
Oh, I love that stuff, man. Yeah. Those those guys are making plenty of money. Right. That's that's my feeling is like, you know, there's plenty of money to that and there's always a shortage of money for like good projects to study what needs conserving, how we might mm-hmm. manage it. Well, and know. it's led to, I mean, you know, that uh that bill has led to the situation that we're in now, which is that, you know, state fish and game agencies, their game management uh departments are very well funded but right. their non-game management departments are not right and, and, and so that would be part of the idea is like we'll fund the non-game management with you know from this other source right and they're funded but they're funded very much with like a, a kind of political slant right they're funded from a particular um a particular base a particular revenue stream whereas if they were funded from like a more general revenue stream they might have more interest in like representing a broader diversity of of voices and opinions within their sort of management decisions whether it be on wolves or grizzly bears or whatever right and i mean it's it's like i mean it's a testament to you know this um this model that was set up back in the 30s right I mean, because yeah, to a certain extent, right? I mean, I think that I think the um, I think the biologists that work at a lot of the, you know, fish and game agencies would you know would argue with you and say we're not biased because of where our funding comes from, um, but which in a lot of cases is probably true, and I'm sure there are cases where that's not true, um, but um, yeah, it makes sense, and why not do it with you know outdoor recreation gear more generally, you know. But yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I did see, um, you know, that that news story about how REI was going to stop selling that gear because it's connected to like gun manufacturing. And it's kind of like, I don't know. I mean, that's another piece that I'm a little bit conflicted about of like, yeah. well, is there anything inherently wrong with selling ammunition? And I mean, yeah. REI is not even selling ammunition. They're just like they're not I'm not even going to sell a product made by a company that also sells ammunition. Like, yeah. Uh, I don't know, man. You know, I buy uh, federal premium ab- ammunition. It feels a because, little abstract yeah. to me. It feels a little too far gone. I know. And it's and it's and it it just seems like the solution is not going to come from. I mean, I I I appreciate the like sentiment behind it. Don't get me wrong, but um, it seems like a heavy-handed solution whereas whereas government if it had the information necessary to restrict or make differences could come up with a solution that that didn't necessarily set you know because i don't i'm not sure that there's anything inherently wrong with manufacturing you know rounds for 22s and 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 go and you know, going out and and learning to shoot a rifle when you're a kid. I, it's not that. It's it's the it's the general. Perhaps it's the general availability. It's the overwhelming firepower that's available to citizens. It's uh, the ease with which people secure them. Those are the issues, and I don't think industry is going to be able to address those issues. That seems like a governmental regulation sort of purview. They sell bike helmets, you know, I mean, we don't, we don't need to, I I just, I'm not sure that's the smart way forward. Yeah, no, but I mean, it does it like the heart of the, of that issue is sort of like, okay, well, you know, people wanting to know a little bit more about, you know, the, the sort of like the ethics behind the companies that they're purchasing right uh equipment from right and and i totally get that and and i mean that should that information should be open and available and if you want to not you know purchase a bike helmet that is produced by a company that also manufactures ammunition then that you're free to make that decision you know what i mean and yeah. you know rei is another company i mean they're free to make this decision. like well i don't want to sell your product because you also many you know manufacture ammo like all right whatever you know if you really want to yeah, buy that, and, you really want to buy that bike helmet, you you know, buy it online. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, federal ammunitions, 
I don't know this for sure, but I would be willing to guess is a is a big supporter of the NRA. And so Savage Firearms. And so like well, follow- but they all are. They all are. And you know, I mean, there 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 aren't ammunition manufacturers that aren't. And so, like, you know, and and I mean, th- this is an interesting question, right? Um, because, um, you know, I I mentioned the lead ammunition issue, which um, is uh, well, a little bit of background here. Um, I produced my first documentary about um, California condor conservation and the lead ammunition issue and how they're connected, um, oh. and how sort of con- condor um, research, you know, led to this revelation that, oh my God, we're poisoning scavengers with lead ammunition. And this, you know, these fragments of ammunition are pervasive throughout these ecosystems. And maybe hunters are even consuming them when they take, you know, their, their, um, their animals home to, to consume them. Um, so it's sort of like a canary in the coal mine type of a story, right. Of like this endangered species, like making us aware of this much broader threat, Um, and also making us aware of a potential human health issue in producing that film. I mean, you know, there are, uh, lots of, uh, I mean, well, at this point, every major ammunition manufacturer produces non-lead alternatives for almost every caliber of, um, rifle out there, right? It's very easy to find these days. And yeah, I mean, I reached out to, I mean, there are a handful of ammunition manufacturers that manufacture exclusively non-lead ammunition. That's their specialty. They don't manufacture the lead-based stuff at all, right? And so I'm like, well, I'm going to reach out to those guys. Maybe they want to support my film and I'll promote that, their company, right? And like, um, but no, 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 no. (laughs) Ammunition manufacturer, doesn't matter if it's lead or non-lead or whatever. I mean, ammunition manufacturers like will not say a bad word about the NRA, period. Yeah, or or support the films about California condors. Yeah, apparently. right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I don't know. I, I I'm curious though if you're familiar with um, the the lead ammo issue. You know, I am a, a little bit. I'm not that much of a shotgun hunter, um, and and so you know, I do, I don't know the details really. I do, I mean, I know lead poisoning is an issue. I. I don't know if it's about consumption of leftover shot, if it's like leaching into things. I'd be happy to learn more. But Yeah, so. I mean, I can give you like a, as concise of a summary as as I'm able to because um, I've, you know, I mean, I made a whole film about it and did a ton of research. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, basically, like, I mean, as, as I'm sure you know, I mean, uh, uh lead shot was banned for use in waterfowl hunting in 1991. So quite a while ago. Um, And, you know, lead ammunition has been known to poison wildlife dating back to the late 1800s was like the first study documenting that, um, you know, waterfowl populations were being negatively impacted by lead shot. Right. Um, However, what I'm talking about and the topic of my documentary um, was although the lead shot issue was certainly connected to this, it was not about lead in shot. It was it was about lead in high powered rifle ammunition. And oh, wow. so, um, what was learned? I mean, it's it's people have known you know for a century that um, lead based ammunition fragments as it passes through um, you know the the body of an animal. Right? Um, it's designed to fragment um, because that slows the bullet down. It you know, increases the size of the wound channel. It increases the stopping power of the bullet, right? Um, that's why, you know, I mean, some rounds are like designed to fragment to a greater extent and some are designed to fragment to a lesser extent, um, depending on sort of the intended use of the ammunition. Um, what was discovered through this research that was being done on uh, California condors um, is that the extent of fragmentation like the distance that is possible to see a fragment from the wound channel is Mm. much larger than anybody realized. And so Mm. um, essentially what this means is that, um, you know, when you, and then on top of that, right, you know, your, your target area when you're hunting a deer elk is the heart and lungs. Right. And so those, um, the, the, the fragments of lead are often concentrated in the gut pile, what's left behind in the field. 
And that's what's, yep. that's a really important food source for scavenging species and specifically California condors, which are highly intelligent and they key in on hunting activity during hunting season. I mean, they sure. sit up in trees and they're waiting for hunters to kill deer and elk, you know, yep. to go down and feed on that gut pile. And condors also feed in social groups, right? So you have one gut pile, you can have 30 or 40 condors feeding on a single gut pile. And that's half the population um, in this one area, like in Arizona and Utah. I mean, it's a population of like 70 to 80 birds. Um, it's right. an endangered species. You could have half the population getting dosed with poison at a single carcass. Right. Wow. Um, and yeah. so this is what's the, I mean, this is it's now known that this is what caused the decline of the California condor. This is why they almost went extinct. And this is what is preventing the reintroduced populations of California condors from reaching a level where they're self-sustaining. Right. So okay. all these California condor populations are actively managed by biologists. And the only reason it's necessary to actively manage them is because they get poisoned by lead repeatedly over and over and over again the vast majority of the you know the the poisoning events are, are sublethal right um mm. but you know lead accumulates in your body and um you know so it it you know what the biologists are seeing is that it's it's these older birds in the population that are um you know most likely to get that that lethal dose um but you know, this was all discovered as a result of this research being done on California condors. And, you know, the first paper um, that was published documenting the occurrence of this, of lead poisoning in condors coming from fragmented lead-based ammunition, was published in 2006. So wow. not that long ago, right? No, no, no. Um, subsequently, you know, as soon as that paper was published, everybody's, you know, I mean, I think immediately people started to draw a couple different connections, right? And first it was like, well, what about other scavenging species, right? And so a whole bunch of research has been done um, over the last 10 years on bald eagles, golden eagles, uh, turkey vultures, ravens, yeah. bears, wolves, coyotes. Every single one of these species has been shown to have elevated blood lead levels um, that correspond with hunting seasons. Right. Wow. Um, yeah. And of course, it's the same type of thing. Like most of these exposures are sublethal, but like, you know, we know, uh, you know, we know a lot about all the negative health uh, consequences that that, you know, sublethal exposure to lead can have in humans. So it almost certainly has negative impacts on all these other animal species. And it's certainly causing mortality. It may not be mortality that is like threatening extinction in the way it is with California condors. Um, but it's certainly killing lots of animals. I mean, like, um, I mean, if you if you Google like lead poisoning bald eagles, I mean, you will see you will you will pull up hundreds and hundreds of videos that are horrible to watch of bald eagles at, you know, uh, uh, like um, uh, animal rehab facilities just dying of lead poisoning. Um, it's 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 awful you know? Um, and then you start to think about human health. Right? Sure. Because if these fragments of lead are traveling such a great distance from the wound channel, then this raises the question of like, okay, well, most hunters will say like, oh yeah, I just cut out all the bloodshot section in my animal and I'm fine. Right. There's no lead in that. That's not true. Um, and so there's been a bunch of research showing where, you know, folks take random samples of, uh, you know, ground meat packages and steaks um, from, you know, uh, these these processors who process game meat for hunters. Um, yeah. and, and a certain percentage, I mean, the percentage varies quite a bit depending on, you know, like where it is. And I mean, there's a thousand different factors that, you know, are going to determine that where, you know, shot placement, bullet type, all that stuff. Right. But in every single study, they've documented certain percentages of the packaged meat contain fragments of lead. Um, yeah, because oftentimes those, you know, the, they just kind of the burger meat all goes into the same mix and you get back what I, even if you're using steel. And that's the thing, right, is if you and I mean, 
else's. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a reason to not go to one of those processors yeah. with your animal because you're right, it gets mixed in sometimes and you could think you're doing the response, you know, like you may be like, oh, I'm going to use non-lead because I don't want to take home meat that's, you know, has fragments of lead in it and you might end up with meat that has fragments anyways. Right, right, you know? right. Um, so, yeah. I feel like, I feel like, is this pretty, this is the first time hearing of this. So I don't know if that's just it speaks to my own lack of awareness or if that's if there's in general, not a lot of uh, in general, not a lot of awareness around the issue among, amongst hunters, especially especially big game hunters, because yeah. it, it, the, the lead shot thing is I think most people know about. But mm. uh, no, I, I think I think it's, there's a big I think there is a big outreach and education problem in, in, in relation to this this issue. Absolutely. Yeah. There is, you know, um, and that's why I, that's why I made a film about it. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it was sort of like my first attempt to make a film and I made a lot of mistakes. And I'm sure if I went back and did it again, I could reach a lot more people because I'd have a better strategy. But <laughs> Sure. Uh, but the the film is out there as a resource. I could I could send you the link. Um, yeah. and you could you could check yeah. it out. Um, and you know it's um, yeah it's a tricky issue, man. And I mean it's it's you know the 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 one disconnect that the 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 piece to this that I think has has prevented it from sort of like blowing up and becoming like a big national issue that more people are aware of is that. Um, that the connection, you know, there, there, there is this proof that shows that a certain percentage of, uh, percentage of packaged meat um, will contain fragments of lead if you use lead-based ammunition to harvest the animal, right? Um, the research that has not yet been done, and I'm still waiting for somebody to do this, um, I think it's just a difficult study to design, is um, the research that sh- proves that... Um, consuming that amount of lead has negative health consequences is detrimental. And so, you know, what, what if, you know, and, 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 you know, now you understand where my perspective on the NRA comes from, right? Because when I was working on this film, I was constantly like reaching out to, to people from the NRA and just trying to, you know, feel out their position on this issue. And, um, what, what they say is that, Oh, these fragments of lead, um, the, the type of lead that's in ammunition is inert and it'll just pass right through your body and it's not harmful at all. <laughs> that sounds like the tobacco industry. Right. Or that's actually what they're saying is that, oh, it's safe to consume this lead. Sure. Like, well, there is a mountain of evidence, um, you know, done on the negative, uh, you know, health impacts of consuming any amount of lead and, you know, I, I interviewed a couple uh, lead toxicologists um, in my film, and I mean, everybody says the same thing. Like, there is no such thing as a safe level of lead consumption. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, for young kids, it's 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 really really bad. I mean, um, you know, it affects brain development, and you know, it's been proven to to um, decrease IQ later in life, even at very very low um, levels of ingestion. Um, but even for adults, it's been shown to have uh, long-term negative health consequences, even at even at levels that are below, like that are so low that they're not considered clinical lead poisoning. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Um, so, like the CDC sets a standard for you know what is considered clinical lead poisoning, and it's quite low. I mean, it's been it's they actually lowered it while I was producing my film. They lowered it from 10 micrograms per deciliter to five micrograms per deciliter, mm. um, which is a very, very small amount of lead. I mean, the amount of lead that we were um, that the biologists that work with condors are documenting in the con- the bloodstream of condors that are poisoned is I mean, like a normal level to see with a condor that's been poisoned is like you know, 60 to 100 micrograms per deciliter. And they brought condors in that have consumed so much lead that their blood lead levels are like 600 micrograms per deciliter. Um, just continues to accumulate. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you if you had like, you know, if you consumed one of these teeny little fragments of lead, it raised your blood lead level up to like one or two micrograms per deciliter. Like you're not going to notice anything. You're not going to be like, you're not going to feel sick, you know? There's not going to be any like symptoms whatsoever. Right. But that will increase your chance of heart disease later in life. Right. 
and it'll increase your risk factors for a whole long list of uh, you know of diseases later yeah. in life. Yeah, that's crazy. and then if you do it again, right, and then again, right, and then it. again, yeah. you know, um, yeah. it accumulates. So, and it, it accumulates in soft tissue and then in bone, right? So the the research, I mean, this is I'm going off on a tangent now, obviously, but like this is this is su- a, just a super fascinating little tidbit that I like to tell people. Um, so the guy who, uh, uh, when we think about lead and like lead poisoning in humans, we think about lead in gasoline, right? And lead in paint. Um, and, um, I mean, it, it's the, 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 situation that, that we went through as a country, um, for, you know, the period from the 1920s through the 1990s, when all gasoline had lead in it and sure. all paint had lead in it throughout that entire period of time. And the, the result of that was that everybody was being dosed with lead. Every single person in the country, right, was getting, you know, these very low level level sub in 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 most cases subclinical doses of lead, and throughout their entire lives, right. Now we Um, know what's wrong with that generation. Well, right, and 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 this (laughs) this research has shown, you know, there's been this this research that has shown that even at very low levels, right, you uh, it decreases your IQ. By a few points later in life, right? Which, like, you know, oh, if, if that happens to a few people, like, you know, I mean, at one of the the lead toxicologists I interviewed, I mean, he said, like, look, you could be the smartest guy in the room, you could be a genius, right? But think of how much smarter you would have been if you hadn't had that dose of lead when you were a kid, right? Like, but now think about it on a societal level, right? Because IQ is a bell curve, right? So the, you know, uh, like the vast majority of people fall within this like range of normal, right? But then you have the outliers out here, right? Like this is your curve. And then you have the outliers out on either side, right? Very, very few people are geniuses and very, very few people are, you know, um, you know, have these mental uh, uh, deficiencies, right? Um, and this large scale societal poisoning of everybody with lead, it shifted the whole bell curve moved. Right. And so what that did is it exponentially decreased the number of people that are geniuses and it exponentially increased the number of people that have severe mental problems. Right. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And so it poses this question of like, wow, like what, what would our society look like? if that hadn't happened. Right. And so, <laughs> sure, sure. And so this guy, this, this, and, and this just, you know, maybe three or four years ago, um, this, this journalist, um, made this really fascinating connection, um, that was based on some research that was done. And essentially he was looking at, um, you know, what are the causes behind, um, decreases across the board everywhere in the country in crime rates? Because, mm. One of the symptoms of lead poisoning at a young age is, uh, you know, uh, uh, an, an, an increase in, um, you know, susceptibility to um, violent behavior okay. later in life. Right. Sure. And again, it's the, it's the type of thing where it's like in one individual, like if you weren't prone to that, then like maybe there's a slight difference, but it's like, you know, yeah, not that perfect. maybe not that significant, right? But when you talk about it on a societal level, all of a sudden it's like you're talking about percentages, and that does have a dramatic effect, right? And there, and you know, the, this question of like why has crime decreased in every major city all across the U.S. across the board over the last two decades, very consistently, like yeah. nobody knows why. It's a mystery, right? And literally, this guy makes the argument of like, the only thing that explains both the increase in crime and the decrease is lead poisoning. Huh. And, you know, he makes this point of like, the increase happened at the point when that first generation of people that grew up in this era when there was lead in gasoline and lead in paint, that was when the increase started to happen is at the moment, you know, it was, he's like, it, it was, it, 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 there's a 20 year shift, right? 
because it takes 20 years for those first people that were poisoned in childhood to grow up and ex express, you know, that. Um, and it's literally the only thing that explains, you know, like why that happened. Why was there this period of time when crime rates everywhere increased and then dropped again? Wow. Mm -hmm. You should send me your, do you have, you should send me a link for your, is yeah, this yeah. all in the movie? Uh, no, not, not all the background and history of lead poisoning. It's more, it's focused on condors and like poisoning of wildlife. And I get a little bit into like, you know, some of the implications for human health and, and lead poisoning from ammunition specifically, but I didn't have time to like get it. I mean, I would yeah. love to like make a film about like the big picture history of lead poisoning. Cause it's, it's super fascinating. And there's a bunch of good books that, yeah. that are written that, that talk about that history. Um, yeah, it's a, Super interesting awesome. topic, but yeah, I'll, I'll definitely send you a link, um, to my film for sure. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get you, I'll get you converted and, and then you'll start converting other people. And before you know it, everyone <laughs> will switch to non-lead ammo. That's how it works. Well, yeah, cause I really had no, I'll, I'll totally switch. I had no idea. That, that makes good sense. Yeah. Makes good sense. Indeed. There we go. Cool, man. Well, yeah, I don't, um, yeah, I mean, I I apologize for going off on that tangent, but I, you know, I can't turn <laughs> down an opportunity to to, to um, talk about the the lead ammo issue. So no, it's been fun to talk, man. It's been really cool. Thanks for reaching out. Yeah. To read the writers on the range piece Greg Luther contributed to High Country News, you can find a link on the show notes page at wildlandsinc.org, EOC one forty five. This episode was produced by myself, Catherine Dunning, and hosted by Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.